Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as you may have noticed from that Second Samuel reading, David is having a really bad day. Um, whether, whether you've been following this series of sermons from the beginning or you've just tuned in, David is having a really bad day. Things we might think were bad enough. King David is fleeing from his very own son, from Absalom, who is attempting a takeover. A coup d'etat is in progress, and David is running for his life, away from his own son, who has stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. In our reading this morning, three really bad things happen to poor old David in quick succession. He hears that that Ahithophel, been trying to pronounce that all weekend, he hears that Ahithophel has betrayed him and switched sides and is now working for his son Absalom. Secondly, he hears that Mephibosheth is likewise against him. Mephibosheth has put his hope in David's adversary, Absalom, as the one who will restore his fortunes. And thirdly, he is pelted with stones and insults by this guy, Shimeich, son of Gera, this random person who just seems to come out of nowhere and take it upon himself to, to write what he feels to be the injustices of his time. Before we consider what this might all mean for us, let's take a moment to consider what all this might mean for David. Verse 31, Now David had been told... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Um, who is this Ahithophel? Well, actually, we've only, just, we've only just met him. We don't know much about him. We, we met him only 19 verses ago, uh, and our narrator told us uh, in verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilho, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Well, although the narrator hasn't had, to, had cause to mention him before, clearly this Ahithophel had a very special relationship with David, because firstly, he is described as David's counselor, not one of David's counselors, but David's counselor. And secondly, he's obviously a really special guy because Ahithophel's defection from David's camp to Absalom's camp obviously seriously impressed people. They all thought, oh, if Ahithophel's switching sides, he's a really bright guy. Maybe I should too. And so uh, he brought enormous prestige and credibility to Absalom's conspiracy. It gained in strength. Later on in this story, the narrator will tell us, now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, it was like one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel was obviously so very intelligent, so clear thinking, so insightful, that talking to him was like like talking to God himself. Suddenly, in the light of Ahithophel's advice, everything suddenly makes sense and and you know just what to do. Um, I have some people in my life 
um, that are Ahithophels, that I treat as Ahithophels. Um, I, I hope you do too. People that um, when I need advice, when I don't know what to do, I go to them and, and talk to them and, and pray with them and ask them what they think. Um, it, we all need Ahithophels in the sense of wise counselors who are more insightful, more experienced, more mature than we ourselves are. I guess one person in particular I can think of, I, I, I haven't done anything significant without talking in, in the last 20 years without talking to her first about it. Every significant decision I've talked and prayed together about it. Um, the, the, but the thing about those kinds of beautiful relationships, mentoring relationships, is that Inherently, we confide in our counsellors, don't we? I mean, we trust them with our secret fears and, and our besetting sins. We are vulnerable before them. So David would have felt Ahithophel's betrayal very, very keenly. This is somebody who knows him backwards. What does David do? Well, David's first thought is to pray. Lord... Turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Perhaps he also prayed something like the words of 55, Psalm 55. Words he'd prayed on another, but obviously very similar occasion. Being betrayed by a close friend, he, 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 he prayed his hurt into his uh, God's hands. Verse 12, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead. For evil finds lodging among them. And so David prays, Ahithophel can go to hell. It rhymes nicely, doesn't it? Ahithophel can go to hell. Uh, David doesn't allow himself to say that to his companions. He doesn't say that to the people with him, nor does he say it to Ahithophel himself, but he does say it. He says it to God. Ahithophel can go to hell. And so he tells God exactly how he feels, surrendering it into God's hands. Not something he can say to others, but something he can say to God. But as we saw, prayer wasn't the only thing David did. Um, when David encounters Hushai at the summit of the Mount of Olives, he seizes the opportunity to send Hushai back to Jerusalem as his spy, his own secret service agent, somebody to subvert the counsel of Ahithophel while passing on information to David through his network, Zadok and Sons. And as we will see, God will bless and answer David's prayers. David was, if nothing else, a man of prayer. But he wasn't embarrassed about being the answer to his own prayers. If we were to say, aha, God helps those who help themselves, then we'd be misunderstanding what's happening here. No, rather... God helps those who rely totally on him. But 
and we see this here and we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, relying on God doesn't make us passive. As elsewhere in the Old Testament, effective leaders prayed like there was no work and worked like there was no prayer. So that's, that's the first disaster, Ahithophel. Hot on the hills comes Ziba, steward of Mephibosheth. Now, if we've been reading since the start of this book, we know a lot about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was, was King Saul's grandson, the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. Mephibosheth was disabled, having been crippled in both feet as a five-year-old boy, hurt in the flight out of Gibeah at the time of the Philistinian invasion. Many years later, when Saul and Jonathan were both long dead, and when David was king, David sought out and found Mephibosheth in order to restore to him his father's estate. And that was an act of astonishing grace and kindness. David was keeping a promise that nobody but David knew even existed, a promise to Jonathan, his best friend. Mephibosheth, in the blink of an eye, went from being a social outcast hidden away to being a wealthy landowner who ate at the king's table every day, a member of David's royal inner circle. Mephibosheth. And then suddenly, on the day David has to flee from Jerusalem, there's Ziba, Mephibosheth's estate manager, telling him, oh, uh, Mephibosheth is staying in Jerusalem because he believes that Absalom will make him king, restoring the royal line of Saul. And David must have thought, oh, great. That, that's, that's how you repay me for my kindness to you. And then bang, hot on the heels of all of that, comes thirdly, Shimei, the son of Gera, cursing David. He pelted David, and verse 6, he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you! For all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. And boy, that must have stung. Because it was so unjust. This bloke, Shimei, where he's come from, he's completely and utterly wrong in his political analysis, in his recreation of history, his, his interpretation of events. He's got it all backwards. David did not murder anyone in Saul's household. In fact, David's absolute loyalty to Saul as the Lord's anointed was extraordinary. Twice he had the opportunity of killing Saul as Saul was trying to kill him, but he didn't. He was so loyal to Saul. That must have stung the injustice of it. Well, Abishai, Joab's brother, and along with Joab, he's a long-standing companion of David, and he's one of David's generals of his armed forces. Abishai points out to David, you don't have to put up with this. Let me deal with him. And in response, David makes a short speech, making three points. Abishai, um, 
not sure if you're keeping up with current events here, but my own son is trying to kill me. The pain of that is infinitely worse than some guy pelting names and rocks at me. This is nothing compared to the pain of Absalom trying to kill me, my own son. Abishai, besides, this is from God. So don't stop it. It is from God. That's my second point. And thirdly, Abishai, I, I trust God. I trust him to turn this curse into a blessing for me. I trust him in the exercise of justice. I trust him to see just how miserable I am. I trust him to comfort me at the right time. Because boy, I'm having a rotten day. Cast all your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty, the deceitful, they'll not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. Um, in all of this, um, uh, David avoids two errors that I think we as Christians, we often fall into. You see, on the one hand, Christians, we are, generally speaking, we are extremely sensitive to even the faintest whiff of injustice. Uh, we do not like it. And we often hear it as a trumpet call to action. Uh, some of us, uh, I'd say, some of us would hear the utter injustice in all of this and leap into action, hardly registering that there's a big difference between defending others and defending yourself. David doesn't make that mistake. He does not defend himself. He doesn't get all hung up about the fact that there's, this is unjust, what Shemai is saying. The other mistake he doesn't make is that many of us um, I think we, we actually would, like David, we just cop this, we just cop this on the cheek and just turn, turn the other face or whatever and, and, and we'd shy away because we're so incredibly conflict-adverse um, that, that we'd all go into appeasement mode and go, oh, blessed is the peacemakers, not realizing that being a peacemaker and appeaser is completely different. And so we'd do nothing because we were too cowardly to do anything but David isn't doing that either. He's not a coward. He's, he's not backward at shedding blood when he needs to. He's not making either of those two mistakes. He's just simply holding an even strain, not buckling one way or the other. So these three vicious, unmerited, unjust betrayals all on the same day, the intimate friend, the one he'd helped, and the random heckler, how, how can David just not collapse under all of this? Indeed, my question is, how can David be so flippin' godly? <laughs> how can he be so unbearably pious? Well, actually, it's because he knows, that, he knows what, why this is happening. He knows that God is punishing him. And that makes all the difference for David. And you know what? He's right. David has brought all of this down on his own head. Uh, he, he, when he lost his grip, when he lost his grip on power, when he acted like a tyrant, when he took what he wanted without reference to God or neighbor, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged to have her husband killed, 
on the battlefield, making it look like an accident, that's when. And the prophet Nathan came to David and said to him, among other things, Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me when you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. And on that day, after, after with Nathan confronting him, uh, David begged for forgiveness. He, I have sinned, he said. But David asked for forgiveness and he was forgiven. God would continue to be his God and David would continue to be God's child. But God would not let this sin go without consequences. And so then, returning to today's text, David knows that in this awful day, God is disciplining him. That's why David can bear up even under unjust suffering. David knows that he is suffering as a murderer, even though it wasn't Saul or anyone from Saul's household that he murdered. David knows that he is a murderer. Actually, he murdered Uriah. There is the justice of God in all of this, even if it's being dispensed corruptly through fallen, evil human hands. Well, enough about David. What, what might this mean for us? Well, to some degree, uh, I think most people experience correction as rejection. Correction equals rejection for many of us, maybe for m most of us. Um, not many of us, I suppose, actually enjoy being corrected or disciplined or rebuked or reproofed. I can feel my heart sink whenever I realize that someone is about to criticize me or tell me I'm wrong or, or say you've done the wrong thing. I, my heart sinks. And there have been plenty of instances in my time here at St. Barnabas, let alone beforehand or elsewhere, there's been plenty of times for me here at St. Barnabas when, uh, when I, have, um, where, uh, I have come out all, all guns blazing in response to criticism. In response to criticism, I've defended myself most vigorously. I don't necessarily do well when I'm criticized. However, for better or for worse, our ability to either receive correction or praise is a good measure of how robust we are internally. Resilient people, people with a strong sense of internal self-worth, they'll not be thrown by criticism or by praise. But the more fragile we are on the inside the more it disturbs and distresses us. And that's because we're depending upon the good opinion of others to push back against, to, to push back against our own self-loathing, our own doubts and fears about our own acceptability, about our own um, goodness, being good enough. And when that self-worth appears to be un under threat, when, when the good opinion of others turns to bad, we have nothing inside to stop ourselves from condemning ourselves along with them. Rebuke can make us feel really bad about ourselves. 
so bad that we cannot cope. And that would be terrible enough, but now I'm going to make it worse. Uh, you see, we live in a time, culturally speaking, when more than ever before in human history, feelings are considered more authoritative than facts. Feelings considered more authoritative than facts. We live in an age where the golden rule, more and more and more, is essentially this. Thou shalt not make me feel uncomfortable. Given then that correction can lead to intense feelings of discomfort and that in our culture this is taken as some signal that something fundamentally unjust is happening, then it's very, very easy for people feeling the pain of correction to sincerely believe that they're being bullied, that they're being abused. Our society has so lost its own internal moral compass that it can no longer tell the difference between correction and abuse. This is, I mean, apart from anybody else, this is a huge problem for employers who nowadays have to enter into performance management with extreme care if they're not to find themselves in the law courts accused of bullying and harassment. Believe it or not, we now live in an age where you can no longer tell lazy and incompetent people that they're lazy and incompetent. And that's really bad news. Because lazy and incompetent people need to be told that they're lazy and incompetent. They need to be told that they're lazy so that they can repent. And they need to be told that they're incompetent so that they can go off and find something that they're actually good at. Because otherwise, not only are they a threat to the entire organization, they're a, they're a danger to themselves. We're not, we're, not, we're not helping them. We're not helping them by denying them the truth that they're lazy and incompetent. So then, if God does not intervene to save us from this woeful trajectory, we will all, our entire society, we will all, in our stupid desire to live life feeling safe, we will all become unteachable, unable and unwilling to listen to correction. That will make us unteachable, unfit for doing anything good. Lord have mercy. But David is different because actually he knows something that we don't. Although in fact we should know it, I should know it, I've read it often enough, probably you have as well, but whether it's sunk in is a different matter altogether. It's all through the Bible. Uh, one place where it's crystal clear is in the book of Hebrews. Um, now, the, the, the writer... Uh, to, to the, to, to the, to, of the book of Hebrews, he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. They're being persecuted unjustly. They're being persecuted for being Christians. And that meant for them the social isolation, being rejected, confiscation of property, some of them even being put in jail. And um, he, the author writes to them saying, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, 
Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline for God is treating you as sons for what sons are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Our human fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's what David understood. He'd heard it. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. David is a child of God, belonging to him unconditionally, always and forever. But David knows that he is also a son of God. That is to say, one who, in God's image, represents God in all of his authority and in his likeness. David accepts rebuke from others, even in the form of unjust suffering, because he knows that this is evidence of God's love for him. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you too are a child of God. And if you believe in Jesus, then you too are a son of God, whether you are male or female. The concept is communicated in the Bible by way of engendered language, but it's a gender-inclusive idea. In Christ, all disciples are sons of God. And therefore, all the disciplined. This is what David knew. Um, it's, it's It's totally different. Correction does not equal rejection. No, in Christ, correction equals acceptance. Isn't that extraordinary? Correction is a manifestation of the acceptance we have in Christ, of the love that we have in Christ. David is being punished by God because God loves him and because God will never let him go or abandon him. Okay, hold on. The language of punishment is problematic. So let's make a distinction. Um, If God was punishing us, we'd be naked and dead on a cross right now. Uh, God put all punishment upon his son. Jesus took our punishment on himself when he died on the cross for us. Punishment is done away with. Discipline as something good for us. Um, If David is not being punished as a murderer, the right punishment is death. He was forgiven. He is being disciplined by God his Father so he knows the seriousness and his family knows the seriousness of, of what it means to be in leadership, of what it means to represent God. David is not being punished. He is being disciplined. He knows that he is God's son. God will never abandon or forsake him. 
the, the radical, unconditional acceptance we have before God should radically transform our experience of hardship, any hardship, but especially the experience of unjust suffering. I mean, after all, what is so evil, what is so sinful in being baptized? What? What was so sinful about being baptized? That immediately Jesus had to go for 40 nights and 40 40 days being tormented by Satan in the wilderness. Nothing. He heard God speak to him. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. There's no, there's no justice in him then being led by the Spirit in order to do without food and drink, in order to be left by himself with his fears and his worries, if you are the Son of God. For 40 days, there's no justice in it, completely unjust. But it pleased God to make the author and perfecter of our faith perfect through what he suffered. And he suffered unjustly. Um, understanding hardship as discipline, that this is evidence of God's love for us. That when we, when we suffer unjustly and we bear with it patiently, we're walking in Christ's footsteps. We're doing what Jesus did. And understanding this, that we are sons of God, it also radically transforms our experiences of correction, rebuke, and criticism. Let a righteous man strike me. It is like oil on the head. I know I'm being told off because they love me. And I love them. Okay, it might be a bit unjust. I'll listen to it patiently. I'll pray about it carefully. And I'll apply what's good with, God, with spirit-given wisdom. But when we understand that correction equals acceptance... We will be teachable, ready to do good, ready to make mistakes and to learn from them, ready to grow and mature into the likeness of God in Jesus Christ without worrying about whether or not I'm a so-called good person or not. Because actually I'm robust on the inside because of Jesus. I know who I am because I've met my Creator and I know that He loves me. The question of my self-worth is settled. I am who God has made me to be. Someone for whom the Father sent the Son. Someone chosen in Christ before the beginning of time. Someone for whom Jesus died upon the cross. The question of my self-worth can never be answered or threatened by either praise or criticism. Whether they're for me or against me, I know who I am. Whether I'm hated or loved or praised or criticized, I know who I am because I've met my Creator in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son. So the next time Satan tempts you to despair, I'm not sure if you get this question in your head, I get it in my head all the time, is God punishing me? It's a really nasty question. I don't know about you, I get that in my head all of the time. Well, no matter all the time. A lot of the time. But the next time I get the question in my head, is God punishing me? Well, here's one way now that I know I can respond. I can respond by saying, I hope so. I hope so. 
because in Jesus I am his child and in Jesus I am his son. And the Lord bless you and make his face to shine upon you. Amen.